Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Lawyers in the Making podcast. I'm your host, as always, Nate Crespo, and today we have another amazing guest. He's a University of Illinois College of Law graduate and is currently retired from the law. He has held past positions as the Chief Operating Officer of Donahue, Brown, Matthewson, and Smith, LLC, and as a managing partner of Leip, Lyons, Murphy, Narstad, and Ponticus. It is with the utmost honor to welcome Mr. Brad Narstad to the podcast. Brad, how are we doing today? I am doing great, Nate. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for asking. Now, Brad, before we get started, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. Uh, so I, um, <clears throat> wow, I don't, I know how far you want me to go back. Uh, uh, I am a 1989 graduate of Monmouth College, which is a small liberal arts college in uh, Western Illinois. From there, I went to the University of Illinois College of Law. I graduated from there in 1992. And I started my career working for a trial firm in Chicago that at the time I started with them was called Williams and Montgomery. Uh, ultimately, that firm became Williams, Montgomery and John. I uh, started there as an associate. I worked my way up to income partner. I then became an equity partner. I spent uh, two different um, uh, stints or had two different stints on the firm's executive committee. I then left that firm after 20 years and started my own firm uh, with uh, four other lawyers from the the, the um, Williams, Montgomery and John firm. We started a firm called Leip, Lyons, Murphy, Narset and Ponticus. That uh, firm started with the five of us. Eventually, uh, it grew to, when I was there, it grew to 17 lawyers. I, I think they now have 22 lawyers. Uh, I retired from the active practice of law in 2019, and I then went and became the chief operating officer of a 40-lawyer firm in Chicago by the name of Donahue, Brown, Matthewson, and Smith. And I served as their chief operating officer, essentially responsible for running the firm for two years, uh, retired in uh, the in December of 2021. And since December of 2021, I have been officially retired, although I still uh, do some uh, work in the legal field. Donahue Brown hires me every fall to recruit their uh, their next summer class, their next class of uh, summer associates. And then in the winter, uh, at least up until December, uh, that they have me train their new lawyers. I also uh, have taught um, this past semester, past fall. My wife and I co-taught a class called um, Pretrial Litigation at the University of Illinois College of Law. So it was a class that uh, covered the handling of a case from the filing of the complaint all the way up to the point of trial. And um, I also um, spend my time uh, uh, volunteering, uh, spend my winters in Arizona. I just uh, just had a book published, working on a second one. Uh, that's me, pretty much, in a nutshell. Well, Brad, first, I just want to say congratulations on retirement. I know Thank that's you. big stuff. I know, you know, it probably took a, took a heavy load off your shoulders. 
in, in terms of the workload. And, uh, you know, one day I hope to be in Phoenix, Arizona, just like you, uh, being able to walk my dogs in the 70 degree weather. Uh, me and Brad were oh, talking yeah. before the podcast about the weather. I'm in snowy Albany. It, you mm. know, it dropped, they dropped five inches on us last night. Out of nowhere, I woke up. I was like, oh, great. Driving in the snow today to the gym. I don't uh, miss that, Nate. I really don't. <laughs> Listen, one day I hope to say the same thing. Um, but let's start all the way at the beginning. Monmouth College. Uh, now, you're more, of, and I don't want to say traditional path, because there really is no traditional path, as I've been learning through doing this podcast. Um, but what was the sort of factors that, that led you to going to the University of Illinois College of Law from Monmouth College? So in, in all honesty, uh, it was a pretty easy decision for me because I got a full ride. So uh, <laughs> it, it was it was kind of a no brainer. Uh, so I um, so I actually uh, the first law school that I got admitted to was Northwestern. And after I got admitted to Northwestern, I got admitted to Illinois and I was in a real uh, quandary because uh, Illinois, as I said, had offered me a full ride. And so I really, all I was going to be paying to go to Illinois was basically room and board. I, you know, I had a tuition waiver. I had, they were offering me money for books and everything. Uh, Northwestern, um, which, you know, this is back in the the late eighties, early nineties, uh, not quite as expensive as it, as it is today, but it was still uh, very expensive. And I got a little bit of scholarship money from them, but not a lot. And so I, I was like, well, what do I do? Do I go, do I go to Northwestern, you know, which has a stellar reputation? Uh, do I go to Illinois, which had a good reputation, but wasn't ranked as high as Northwestern? Uh, and so I talked to someone I knew who was a lawyer and who served on the board of trustees at Monmouth and had gone from Monmouth to Northwestern for law school. And I called him up and I told him, you know, that I'd gotten into Northwestern, that I had gotten, um, the, you know, in Illinois, they, they were offering a full ride. I said, you know, Doug, what do I do? And he said, I think it's simple. He said, go to Illinois. He said, where do you want to practice when, when you finish working? And I said, well, you finish law school. I said, well, I, I want to I probably want to practice in Chicago. He said, then go to Illinois. He said, it's if they're, if, if you're going to get to go there for free, it doesn't make sense to me for you to take on the debt and, and go to Northwestern. He said, I understand. He said, I, I am a Northwestern grad. So, you know, this is someone who went to Northwestern telling you to go to Illinois. He said, um, it's not going to be worth it for you to take on all that debt uh, just, just to go to Northwestern. He said, you're going to get a great education in Illinois. Uh, Illinois feeds uh, all of the top law firms in Chicago. If that's where you want to wind up, he said, go to, go to Illinois. So that's what I did. And uh, it turned out okay for me. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've, I've definitely heard um, from talking to people that that money is obviously always always very high up on the list of things that you should consider when looking to go to law school. Um, I mean, if anyone ever gave me a full ride, I will be at their school. Uh, right. And, <laughs> and, you know, and, and it's interesting that, you you know, you were in that sort of uh, that sort of pickle that you didn't really know uh, what to do. And, and obviously your, your, your lawyer friend there help, helped a lot in figuring out that decision because it seems like a no brainer. But, you know, in that moment in time, it's like, you know, Northwestern, they have these big connections, this big network. But, 
you know, you, you kind of got to make the pros and cons list always. Um, now, at the University of Illinois College of Law, you were actually a member of Phi Alpha Delta that I saw. Um, I'm currently a member of the pre-law fraternity. I'm their current secretary at the UAlbany chapter. So I always got to shout them out. You know, the, the shameless plugs are always going to come in. Um, but let me let me reach back in your memory a little bit. Uh, let's talk about the first year of law school. People always say it was it's always the most traumatic. Was it that traumatic for you? Uh, yeah, well, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was uh, for, 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 for me, I think, for a couple of reasons. One, I, you know, I, I came from a very small school. Right. I, I my high school. I grew up on a farm outside of Rockford, Illinois. So my high school was 300 kids and wow. my graduating class was 82. I went to a college that had 650 students and I had never been at a place as big as Illinois. Uh, I had never uh, been at a place where I wasn't um, well known by the professors, right? M most of the classes that I took at Monmouth were between four and 10 students. And I, I knew the professors on a first name basis. They knew me. You know, there were plenty of opportunities to figure out during the courses of, of a semester how I was doing. There were papers, there were midterms before you got to a final. And I was I was used to uh, having a, a lot of feedback and used to, you know, having a fairly close relationship with my professors. And that doesn't exist in law school. Right. The, the law school professors and I'm not saying they're not I'm, I'm not saying that they're mean, but it's it's that's not the dynamic. Right. They're they're They come in, they teach the class, they leave. If you want to talk to them, you can make an appointment to go see them during office hours. You know, they'll answer, you know, whatever questions you have and then send you on their merry way because they're busy. Uh, doing research, they're writing case books, they're writing law review articles. You know, they're, they're not they're not there to, to, you know, to, to form a relationship with the students. That was very tough for me. The other thing that was very tough for me is in law school, there are no midterm grades, right? There are no papers. You have no idea how you're doing until you get the grade back at the beginning of the next semester. So I went into an entire round of finals, not knowing did I understand this? Did I not understand it? You know, did I did I know what I what I was supposed to know? Uh, there is absolutely no way to find out. And so uh, for me, that was very difficult because it was uh, it wasn't what I was used to. Uh, the the other thing that I had a problem with was. I went from being a very big fish in a small pond to being a very small fish in a big pond where most of the fish that were in the pond with me were me, right? Everybody that I went to school with was an overachiever. And so there is an enormous amount of pressure it, during that first year of law school to do extremely well, to try and get on the law review, to you know study 26 hours a day, uh, you know, it's so it was for me, it was not a fun experience. The first year of law school for me was was probably uh, in all the years of schooling that I had was undoubtedly the worst year that I had. It was it, it was just not a pleasant experience for me. Uh, so I, I learned um, 
And I, I'll be a hundred percent honest with you, Nate. I'm, I had a very rough time my first semester uh, understanding how to digest a case, right? So when you're when you're in law school, and then when you get out, when you're when when you're a lawyer, you have to be able to read a case that's ten pages, twenty pages, thirty pages long. And you have to distill it down to its holding, right? What did the court say? What what did they hold? What was the important legal issue that was decided in that case? And I could not figure out how to do that. Uh, probably halfway through my first semester, I still was having trouble trying to figure out I could read a case and I'd be like, well, I think I know what the holding is. And I would ask one of my friends and they'd be like, no, that's not the holding at all. And I was like, well, I guess I don't know what the holding is. So uh, until I got the hang of actually reading and digesting and understanding how to uh, boil a case down to its very essence, I had I had a very difficult time. So my first semester, second semester of law school was better than the first, but the first semester of law school for me was terrible. It's not that way for everybody. There, there are there are um, a lot of people who um, I think the law comes naturally to them. I'm not. I wasn't one of those people, uh, so I, I had a, a hard time figuring out the law, figuring out how to read cases, how to understand what the court was was saying the case was about. Uh, some people, you know, go to law school and they they can read a case. From day one, and they're like, "Oh yeah, I know what the holding is. I can tell what the holding is." I'm like, I, I, well, tell me what it is, because I don't know what it is. <laughs> so, so yes, the first, the first semester in particular was was rough for me. Um, second semester was a little bit better because I had an idea by that point in time, right? I knew I was a lot more comfortable with what I was reading. I was a lot more comfortable with what I was doing. I was a lot more comfortable with the Socratic method, which is something I'd never experienced before. And so, uh, you know, I had a round of exams under my belt. So the second semester for me was better than the first. The second and third year for me, I really hit my stride. I, I really started to enjoy law school. Um, I was able to take thing, classes that I wanted to take as opposed to being told. Because in the first semester, the first, actually first year, you have no say. You, you basically, whatever law school you go to, they tell you this is the first year curriculum and these are the classes that you will take. So, you know, one of the classes I had to take was criminal law. I didn't want to do criminal law. I had no interest in criminal law whatsoever. So for me, being forced to take, you know, a 16-week course on criminal law was horrible because I, I never envisioned that that's something that I would ever use. Same thing with property law, right? Had to take a year. That class was a year long. I didn't want to do property law. I knew it, but but I had to take it. And so by the time you get to the second and the third year, third year in particular, it's mostly electives. And that's when you get to start taking the things that you really think you want to do. Uh, so you're a lot more excited about the classes. I found the classes a lot more interesting. They were a lot more enjoyable. I did a lot better in them. Uh, so once I got through that first semester, I was okay. But boy, the first semester was, was it was rough. So, you know, there's certainly a lot to unpack there. I, 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 at first, I'd just like to say I appreciate the raw honesty because I think it's it's always important for people to hear that uh, even even from a successful person like you. 
you know, that that even for yourself, that there were so many trials and tribulations in, in your first year, or first semester of law school, even the rest of that first year. Uh, you also said a really interesting point that I haven't heard from anyone yet, but that the law professors are doing much more than just teaching. Uh, you know, they have the law review. They're, they're still trying to put their name out there, still, still trying to, you know, improve their own resume uh, in terms of what they're doing, that they can't focus 100%. Uh, another common theme that that I always keep hearing is the uncertainty of law school is 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 one of the big things in that, you know, going from college to law school, you, you don't get that immediate feedback. You know, in, in a lot of my classes, um, especially, you know, being a philosophy major uh, for our papers, you know, you'll write the paper, they'll give you the feedback and they'll let you rewrite the paper. Uh, yeah, that's gonna happen in law school. <laughs> it, exactly. It 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 takes away that sort of you know it it brings in the unknown and yes. you know you're kind of fighting with that trying trying to figure out am I doing this right am I not doing this right and you can't really answer that question you just get the test day and and you do it um, and as well the the fact that you said that you know it didn't come naturally to you is really important as well because because I think you know people sometimes get in get in I mean I don't know anything about it yet. I, I, you know, I hope to one th one day know a lot about it. Uh, but from talking to people, um, you know, it, it's it's good to hear that that when you got in there, it it wasn't it wasn't like you know you're, you're putting you're putting butter on bread. It, it it wasn't as simple as that. It was like this is a m momentous challenge, uh, and you clearly had succeeded in it. But it took a little bit. Um, like, like I, you know, one of, one of, one of the things I always like saying, uh, you know, keeping in my mind is the only way is through, uh, and, and for law school, that is certainly true. You, you can't avoid the tough things, uh, in law school, but, um, going forward, how did you sort of figure out what you wanted to do later in your career, uh, through law school? So I, when I started taking, uh, the first year you know, round of classes. And it, 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 there's some deviation, but for the most part, if you go to any law school in the United States, your first year, you're going to be taking uh, contracts, property, civil procedure, criminal procedure, and criminal law. They're two different things. So one semester is criminal law, second semester is criminal procedure. Uh, contracts. And so that, that's the first semester course. The second semester course is sales, which is a subset of contracts and then torts, right? Which is basically uh, personal injury uh, law, right? The people get uh, injured because of, you know, lighter explodes or, you know, the seat in their car fails while they're driving. And it's, it's that that's, that's, and that's generally, the first year curriculum, right? Some schools will sneak constitutional law in in the first year, uh, but most of them save that as a requirement in the second year. You'll also, your first year, take legal research and writing, right? It's a year-long course that teaches you essentially uh, how to do legal research and how to write briefs. So I knew taking some of those courses, I did not want to do criminal law. That was not my thing. Didn't want to do property. Again, not, not my thing. The one class, there are two classes that I took that I was intrigued by were civil procedure and torts. Because that seemed to me like the, the kind of thing that, uh, that uh, I could see myself doing, right? 
And so after the first year and got to the second year and I was able to, to load up with the things that I wanted to take as opposed to the things I was told I had to take, I took advanced torts. I took advanced civil procedure. I took federal courts. I, I So I took uh, a lot of classes I took trial advocacy. I took a lot of classes that were in that realm, right? In the realm of torts. And how I wound up, you know, I, I spent 30 years as a trial lawyer. I tried cases for insurance companies and corporations. And I actually wound up doing that by accident. So I was looking around for a job the summer between my second and third year of law school. And I wound up getting a job, a summer clerkship with Williams and Montgomery. And I interviewed with them, not because they were a trial firm, but because they said that they did torts and I was interested in doing torts. I really didn't think about the fact that they tried cases. I just thought about the fact that I like torts and they do torts and they were a smaller firm. They were about 75 lawyers. And they were in Chicago. And so uh, I was lucky to get an interview with them. I was lucky enough to get a summer clerk position with them. Then I got uh, offered a full-time position with, with them. And I'll be honest with you, Nate, I went to work for them not expecting that I would stay. I went there thinking I'll work for them for a couple of years, you know, and Nobody, no, I'm not going to try a case in a couple of years, right? I mean, it's that, that that's just not how it works. So I'll get some experience and then I'll go do something else because I did not believe, although I, I liked torts and I liked federal courts and civil procedure, I did not see myself as a trial lawyer. And so I thought, well, I'll just get some experience and then I'll go someplace else. And it turns out uh, through a very uh, weird series of events, I, I wound up um, working for Lloyd Williams, who was the, the founding partner of the firm and one of the best trial lawyers uh, that the city of Chicago has ever seen. And I worked very closely with him and learned to try cases from him and realized that I was actually pretty good at it. And so 30 years later, here we are, right? So uh, I wound up doing what I did completely by accident. It was not, you know, a lot of people will tell you they know what they want to do when they go to law school and that's what they train for and they get out and they get that job and that's what they do. That was not me. I, I really went to law school not knowing what kind of law I was going to practice. I knew I didn't want to do criminal law and I knew, you know, I didn't want to do corporate stuff. I didn't, I, you know, I didn't want to do transactions and things like that. So I thought, well, I'll go there and I'll see what it's about and I'll figure out what I like. And it turns out that I liked torts and civil procedure and such. And then I luckily wound up with a very, very good trial firm and realized that I was actually pretty good at it. And so I, I kept doing it. Yeah, just just from personal experience, I know last year, um, I, I've, I've, I've talked about this before on the podcast before, I believe, but um, I, I kind of, I went a little, I went a little, not crazy, but I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with the law because, you know, I, I had plans to go to law school and, and I, and I felt the pressure. I was like, all right, I, I really got to start looking into this. So I took like a month of my life and just devoted it solely to figuring out like, you know, what am I going to do? Am I going to do trials? Am I going to do criminal? Am I, am I going to do civil? Am, am I going to do contracts? Um, and I, and I did it for so long and, and, um, 
actually a former guest, Nick Grande, I, he, we, he went to high school with my brothers. Um, but you know, I reached out to him and we were texting each other and I'm like, so like, you know, wh what do you want to do? How did you figure out? He's like, Oh, I don't know. And he was going in his third year. I have no idea. And I'm like, I'm like, what do you mean? Um, so that was so just shocking to me. And, you know, obviously I, I halted the brakes there and I was like, all right, I don't need to figure these things out. Um, but, but would you say that um, it, it helps to, it, it more helps to experience um, actually doing the kind of work that you were doing that you kind of found that you loved it? Was that something you, you found in your career? Yeah. And, and here's the thing. The, the law is a jealous mistress. She wants all of your time and you're going to spend, if you're, if you're going to be good at it, if you're going to, if you're, because believe me, there are a lot of mediocre lawyers out there. There are, there are a lot of lawyers that, and, and there are also a lot of really bad lawyers out there. Uh, but if you want to do it well, if you want to be at the top of your game, you have to spend a lot of time. You know, when I, when I interview people for, to come work for Donahue Brown for the summer, I, I always tell them, I said, look, our, we're, we're looking for people who are going to join us long term, right? Who are going to work for us during the summer and then come back to work for us when they graduate from law school. I said, here's what you need to understand. This is not a nine to five job. If you want a nine to five job, go work for a bank. I said, this is not a five day a week job. It's a seven day a week job. If you want to do it well, it's going to take an awful lot of your time. And so you need to make sure that you're doing something that you really enjoy. Because if you're doing something that you don't like, simply because it pays the bills, you're going to be miserable. And so you need to take the time when you're in law school to, to take classes, take things you wouldn't normally think, may, because you might find out that you really like it. So I took a class in wills and estates. And I'll tell you, Nate, after that, I was probably in that class for a couple of weeks. And I was like, I will tell you right now, there is not a snowball's chance in you know where that I will ever draft a will for somebody. I didn't draft my own will. I I hired somebody to draft my <laughs> estate plan because I I that is not something that I knew I was ever going to be good at. It wasn't something that I had a desire to do. And so I knew, I took the class and I realized, nope, that's not me. But I also knew from taking some of those other classes I think I can see myself doing this. This is something that I think I will enjoy. And then when I got hired by that firm and I started doing trial work, I went into it with an open mind. I said, you know, well, let's see, let's see what this is. You know, let's let's see what this is all about. And I and I realized uh, that it was something that I enjoyed doing. It was something that I that I was good at. And I thought, well, why would I go do something else, right? If this is something that makes me happy and it's something that I'm that I'm good at and something I can excel at, why not do it? And so, I, I mean, I got lucky. I know an awful lot of lawyers who have spent the better part of a career doing things that they do not like. They just don't enjoy what they're doing. And as a result, they're not happy people. I was always very happy as a lawyer. <laughs> I'm very happy that I'm no longer a lawyer, but when I was practicing, I was always very happy as a lawyer because I, I found something that I really enjoyed and, and that's what I did.
Yeah, that, that that's probably the, the, one of the most important points that, that you make in this entire episode, to do something that really, truly makes you happy. Uh, just just speaking personally, uh, you know, I, I do this podcast. I continue to do this podcast because I truly do love it. Um, you know, it's it's one of my favorite things in the world. It even it gets me out of bed in the morning, I swear. Uh, you know, I, I released an episode earlier today and, and you know, I, I, I woke up. I was like, oh, I got I got to get on that. I, I got to, you know. <laughs> Go 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 and download the episode and and get it on Spotify and all the different platforms that I do. You know, make the message. Um, but you know, just enjoying it, it does. It really does make me a much happier person. Uh, you know, to do something that I love and and clearly, you 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 truly truly represent that. Um, you know, because you even just talking to you right now, you seem like a very happy guy. Um, oh, I'm very happy. <laughs> I've always been happy. <laughs> um, but. Speaking on on you know your your thirty years, which is a very long time, at uh that's that's older than me. Uh, the Williams Montgomery. Thank and, you, thank you for thank you for. <laughs> I'm sorry, I I didn't mean to do it like that. I didn't mean to do it like that. Um, I swear, I swear, I didn't mean it like that. Um, <laughs> but um, you you got any interesting stories from your time there? Uh, any interesting experiences? Because thirty years is a long time. There's got to be a lot going on. Wow. Uh, wow. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I have, I, I've, I had some really, uh, interesting, uh, cases. I, I represented CBS corporation for a number of years and I represented them in, um, constitutional cases, free speech cases, uh, which I never in a million years thought that I would ever be involved in. Uh, you know, I took constitutional law when I was in law school and I, and I enjoyed it, but I, I wasn't, I didn't set out to be a constitutional lawyer, uh, but uh, you know, CBS was uh, the, the sponsor of some debates during election season. And they made uh, determinations that if you didn't get a certain percentage of the vote, uh, in the primary, then you weren't going to be allowed to take place, in, you know, participate in the debates mm -hmm. leading up to the general election. And there was a candidate who did not get a uh, very large number of votes and was not allowed to participate in the debates. And he sued them. And uh, he sued them, uh, you know, claiming that, that, you know, it was a violation of his First Amendment rights to not allow him to participate. And we uh, we briefed that case all the way up to the Illinois Supreme Court, wow. uh, which, uh, you know, was was not something I, I ever uh, imagined that I would do. I had an awful lot of work for big corporations. I represented Bausch and Lomb in uh, some product liability suits that they had uh, where people were alleging that their contact lens solution uh, caused them to lose their eyesight, which, you know, that's a, that's a high stakes case. And that's not a, that's not a, 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 a small matter. Uh, I've represented uh, a fortune 500 company uh, as their uh, main lawyer representing them in asbestos litigation in Chicago Again, not something that I ever envisioned that I would do, uh, but uh, it's something that uh, I wound up uh, meeting some someone from the company was Borg Warner, and I wound up meeting a lawyer from Borg Warner who was looking to switch lawyers, and she took a shine to me and wound up 
sending the business to me and it wound up keeping me and a team of six lawyers busy for more than a decade. Uh, again, not something that I ever envisioned uh, doing. I had a bunch of, I did a lot of medical malpractice work and represented a, a number of phenomenal surgeons and, and physicians in cases uh, involving uh, medical procedures and devices. And the thing, the thing that I loved about those cases, Nate, was uh, not only did I have to be a lawyer, but I also had to be a doctor, right? I had to know the medicine just as well as the doctors did because I was cross-examining experts and I was uh, you know, uh, asking them questions about the procedures. And so you you had to know the medicine as well as they did. And that, that to me uh, was, again, something that I that I never thought about. It wasn't something that I thought I'd ever do. Uh, it probably was the my favorite work that I ever did in 30 years was was the medical malpractice work. Uh, it was um, it was challenging. It was interesting. It was rewarding. Uh, it was, uh, you know, no case was ever the same. Uh, so for me, you know, I, I was unlike a lot of lawyers who specialize in one thing, right? So you, you do, you know, wills and estates, you draft people's wills, you handle their estates, and that's really all you do. I did everything. I handled product liability cases. I handled premises liability cases. I handled uh, uh cases involving um, uh, breach of contract and tortious interference with contracts. I handled uh, First Amendment cases. I did an awful lot of insurance coverage work, which is reviewing and analyzing insurance policies for insurance companies. Uh, I handled, uh, 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 I mean, pretty much on the civil side, uh, medical malpractice, just about anything you can think of, I handled. And for me, that's what was interesting about the 30 years was every day was different. Uh, I was never wondering. I was never bored, never said not one day did I ever say, boy, I wish I didn't have to go into the office. Uh, it was just for me, the variety of things that I handled is really what made it uh, an outstanding career for me. Well, that's fantastic to hear that you there was never a day that you were like, I don't want to go in the office. I, I that that is like that is honestly beautiful. Um, I think just just in terms of you know my own life, I hope that I can say that. I I want to say that. I will be saying that. Like you know, do, do a little affirmation there. Uh, but you know, I think it's always important for people to hear that to to make sure that you know they are doing fulfilling work for themselves. Uh, that that they are satisfied with what they're doing because you know like you said there's a lot of angry and 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 not very happy lawyers out there that are doing work that they don't want to do and you know it's unfortunate and you know sometimes that happens in life but listen there's always there's always you know today's they could change they they could do something they want to do that's what i that's what i always uh, believe in um you know it's it's important to take that risk and and do something that you really want to do um but I have to ask, you said something before, a premises liability. What is that? This is more of just a personal question. <laughs> so so that's um, essentially you're representing stores, uh, bars, restaurants, uh, where someone comes into the premises and alleges that they that they got hurt. Mm, so okay. so one of my one of my big clients um, at the time I retired was Costco. 
Uh, you know, everybody knows Costco. Everybody's heard of Costco. I represented them uh, in Illinois in a number of different suits. One of them were premises liability cases, uh, which, uh, you know, where people, for example, somebody would say that they slipped and fell on milk in the milk cooler. <laughs> And they broke their arm, right? And they filed suit against Costco. So Costco would hire me to represent them, to defend them. Uh, the, Costco, by the way, was probably my favorite client in 30 years. I am still an enormous fan of Costco. I um, loved working for them. Uh, they they were, um, for a couple of reasons, one, the, the variety of work, right? So there were premises cases. They they all have pharmacies. So I did pharmaceutical malpractice cases for them. Uh, there were, you know, cases where uh, people would get injured by a product that was sold at Costco. So there was product liability cases for them. Uh, the gr Great variety of work. The other reason I loved working for Costco is they were a... They were a dream employer. Hmm. They treat their employees so well that no hmm. one ever leaves. And as a defense attorney, that's like a, a gift from above. Because generally, when you're representing a corporation, employees leave all the time. They don't, you know, they they don't like the company. They they try find a better opportunity. What whatever they they leave, and then you can't find them. That was never an issue with Costco. I knew if I got a case from Costco, every single employee I needed to talk to was going to still be working for Costco. <laughs> and so for me, selfishly, they were a phenomenal client because they treated their employees so well, no one ever left. And so I didn't have to try and track people down. I knew uh, that that if I needed to talk to somebody, Anyone who filled out a report, anyone who was a witness, anyone who was working in management, I they might not be at the same store, but they'd still be working at Costco and I would be able to find them. So they were they were a great they were a great client. But that's premises liability, that's what premises liability is. Someone gets injured on someone's premises, uh, generally a business and and they sue the business. I myself am a huge huge fan of Costco as well. <laughs> Um, how could, I mean, really, how could you not go wrong with them? Uh, as you said, I know just recently the CEO that they had just promoted had been like an employee for like 27 years. He started as an associate, worked all the way up to yep. the top spot. And I know they're very big on their 150 hot dog. Um, I know the very famous quote is like, you know, I'm not effing lowering that price uh to to all the to all the board of directors uh when they tried to do it so that that was just even symbolically just further showed how wonderful Costco is and once again how could you not go wrong i mean the the big it's a wonderful idea and you know working working in a supermarket myself i worked i worked at shoprite for a year in the produce section but people don't realize how like i guess it when you work in in a supermarket you understand cuz you know, when you're doing produce, you got to take the vegetables and the fruits out of the boxes and then you take the boxes back. But at Costco, you can just put them out, put them right in the boxes and people just take them. It's such a good idea. It's just a giant warehouse. Oh, I, I, I was. And here's the thing. Here's here's the, the, the what 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 always fascinates me about them is. People are paying them to shop there. <laughs> You go there. I mean, I was at Costco last week and you could not move. 
there were so many people in the store you couldn't move. And I just, I look around and all I keep saying to myself is, and people are paying them to shop here. I mean, it's, to me, it's just, you know that they have to be doing something right. If they get the, the, the amount of people they get to come into those warehouses and the people pay what they pay for a yearly membership, you know they've got to be doing something right. And it's just, it it's a phenomenal business model. It's a great company. It's just from top to bottom, it's it, they were just, they were a dream client. I know no one at Costco will hear this, but God, I hope so. You know, shout out to Costco all the way around. Um, I, and even, even like the, it doesn't even, I know a big thing at the supermarket, especially at ShopRite is, is sort of the presentation of everything. So, you know, if you, if the things that are on sale, we always put them in the front. So like if we're doing a deal on the avocados, they're in the front, the apples, they're in the front, but at Costco, nah, just throw it in there. People will find the stuff. And the they don't even take it off the pallets. They just put <laughs> the pallets out. They're like, that's go ahead, the, pick what you want. That's the craziest thing. They just put they put them. It's such a good idea, and God, you know, I wish I thought of it. But you and me both. <laughs> I was I was a couple of years late on that, unfortunately. Um, but going forward, uh, managing partner at your own firm. Can you talk about starting your own firm and and what what goes into that and describe why you even did it? So, I'll tell you why we did it first and then I'll tell you what what went into doing it. We we the five of us, uh Jeff Leip, uh Ray Lyons, Ed Murphy, Tom Pontikas and I had all spent our entire careers at Williams, Montgomery and John. And we got to know each other very well. We handled cases with each other. We 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 got some of the, you know, we shared clients. We uh were very comfortable with with all of us. And we all did the same kind of work. We all did a tort defense work, right? So we represented, they they did the same kind of work I did. Premises, uh, you know, cases, uh, transportation, trucking accident cases, vehicle accident cases, um, medical malpractice, uh, construction. We all did the same kind of work. And Williams, Montgomery, and John went through a transformation. When we all started working there, they were a tort defense firm. That's what they did. And eventually, Barry Montgomery, who was the second named partner in the firm, he decided that he wanted to, to move into commercial litigation. He wanted to do exclusively breach of contracts, tortious interference, business disputes, uh, those kinds of things, which is not what Leip, Lyons, Murphy, myself, or Ponticus uh, wanted to do. We weren't interested in it. We didn't. We didn't have any connections in that in in that field. So uh, he he got the firm to move in that general direction. And eventually, the five of us were, were the only lawyers left at Williams Montgomery that did tort defense work. And Ray Lyons and I managed to land a client. Uh, we we managed to 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 land Outback Steakhouse as as a potential client. We were going to handle all of their cases uh, in the state of Illinois. And Montgomery wouldn't let us take them in as a client. He basically told us that he didn't want to do that kind of work. Uh, it didn't pay enough. And he made us call the person back. A client, by the way, that we'd been pursuing for three years. And we had to call her back and say, 
thank you very much for your faith and confidence in us, but we can't take your work. And so the day that that happened, um, Ray and I went to talk with Jeff Leip and said, look, this is a very bad development because we're all trying to bring in this kind of work and Montgomery apparently doesn't want us to, to do it. He's not going to let us bring it in. And so that's really why we started our own firm. We we all met and we said, look, we've we basically we have uh, three options. We can stay here and try and change the firm, but we didn't have enough votes to do that. So that wasn't an option. We could pick up as a group and go to another firm, but our fear was if we did that, what happens in two or three years if they decide they want to do something else, right? So the third option was start our own firm. And we were just stupid enough to think that we could do it. And so uh, we spent the better part of a year um, planning and putting things in place. And I'll tell you, Nate, if I if I knew after I did it, if I knew when I did it, what I learned later, I wouldn't have done it. It was an enormous amount of work to start a, a firm from scratch. I mean, it, it was beyond an enormous amount of work. And keep in mind, we, we were still working full-time for Williams, Montgomery, and John. So on top of our full-time jobs as trial lawyers for that firm, we were, we were trying to start our own firm. And everything from, you know, finding space to finding, uh, you know, a, a phone system, uh, computers, uh, what, what type of billing system are we going to use? What kind of software system are we going to use? To, I'll give you a, a perfect example. So Williams, Montgomery, and John, we had a file room. And you could go into the file room and you could get anything that you needed. Pens, paper, legal pads, post-it notes, scissors, three-hole punches, uh, rulers, pens, uh, markers. Uh, you name it, you could get it. Just walk in the room and take whatever you needed. Well, Life Lions didn't have such a room, Nate. We didn't. We, so, so I'm not kidding you. I went to uh, Office Depot and I spent an entire day wandering around Office Depot, writing down all the things I thought we would need to be able to stock our own supply room. Right. We we had to get insurance. Right. We didn't we didn't have to worry about that. When we worked for Williams, Montgomery and John, we were covered under their insurance, their workers comp insurance, their professional liability insurance, their health insurance. We had to go get all of that stuff. We had to figure out how are we going to pay people? We had to figure out where was the money going to come from? Because remember, we didn't have a going concern. So all five of us had to had to put a hundred thousand dollars up in order to start that firm. We had to come up with a business plan. I'd never drafted a business plan. I'd never had to draft a business plan, but we had to have a business plan because we had to go to a bank to be able to get a line of credit because the the five hundred thousand dollars we were putting up wasn't going to last for more than a couple of months. Because we needed to bring support staff with us. We needed to bring associate lawyers. We needed to hire more lawyers. So I had to figure out, how do you draft a business plan that a bank is going to look at and say, these are this is a group that we're going to take a chance on. We're going to give them a line of credit. I hadn't thought about any of that stuff before 
we decided that we were going to start this firm. And so it was an enormous undertaking. And then we decide, you know, we get we have one of our last meetings before we're going to pull the plug, before we're going to walk in and tell Montgomery that we're resigning and we're going to start our own firm. And I will tell you when I finish this thought, the, the worst part of starting our own firm. <laughs> so we're sitting there, we're like, well, somebody has to be the managing partner. And so the other four are like, well, it's you. And I was like, no, it's not me. I don't want to be the managing partner. I, I have I have a full caseload. I have I I I'm I don't have time to manage the firm. Nope, you are going to be the president and managing partner. So I became the president and managing partner of the firm. Here was the worst part about starting the firm. In Illinois, you cannot tell your clients preemptively that you are going to leave and start your own firm. Mm. It's a breach of the fiduciary duty that you owe to your current partners to do that. So we started our own firm without having talked to a single one of our clients to find out if they would come with us to our new firm. Now, we expected that they would because we were the ones that brought them in the firm. We were the ones that were doing their work. So we expected that they would, but we had no guarantee. So we started this venture without knowing whether a single client would come with us. We also, by the way, didn't know if our old firm, even though they said they didn't want to do that work, was going to try and keep the business because it was several million dollars worth of business. So it turns out every single client came with us to our new firm. But imagine how scary it is to pull the trigger on starting an endeavor where the five of us could be sitting there the next day looking at each other going, well, I wonder what we're going to do now. <laughs> <laughs> because what if the clients say no? What if the clients say, look, we want to stay with an established firm. We don't want to go to a startup firm. So it was really, really a fun time. Well, I mean, wow. First of all, awesome story. Uh, I, I enjoyed listening to that myself. Um, I mean, just so much going on. When you said that only 500K would only last you a couple months, that that really shocking me right now because that's a lot of money. I've never seen that mon much money in my life. Um, but, I, I, money, but, it, but it goes fast. <laughs> clearly, I mean, oh my God, just a couple months and five hundred, half a million dollars. Um, it's, it's shocking, honestly, but, but, you know, it's the reality of the situation. And, and I'm glad I asked that question because clearly I just opened up an entire Pandora's box of, of that <laughs> wonderful story. Um, but, but can, can, can you describe, uh, you know, how important it was to take that risk? Because on top of all of that, uh, since your firm was moving in that direction, you were losing the thing that you, what made you happy and what you were doing. Can, can you describe what, what went into taking that risk? Sort of just your mindset of like, I'm doing this. Well, I, I as I said, we really didn't think that we had a choice because uh, the, the guy that was running Williams, Montgomery and John, he had made it abundantly clear that he was not going to allow us to bring in that, that type of, of work. And, and in the legal business, if you don't have clients, you're screwed. You, you, you are beholden to everyone else who does. 
So we were looking at it as the, you know, essentially he's cutting off our lifeblood, right? We, we are not going to be able to survive without being able to bring in the type of work that, that we want to do. And, you know, I, I was the youngest, the youngest, uh, in terms of seniority with 20 years. Okay. Everyone else that left with me had much more seniority than I, um, Ray Lyons and Ed Murphy, they had been practicing for uh, almost 30 years at that point. And so all of our connections, all of the, all of the work that we had done to, uh, to publicize ourselves, to promote ourselves, was in the realm of tort defense. And so that's where we had connections that could send us business. And so we we didn't, we couldn't just pivot on a dime and say, well, you know, let's forget the tort stuff. Let's just start doing commercial work. A, we didn't like doing that work. B, we didn't find it appealing. And C, we didn't have any connections that could send us that kind of work. So for me, there were two things that really uh, made me say I've got to go. One, what? Well, actually, three things. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be a hundred percent honest with you, Nate. Three things. One was the fact that Lloyd Williams, who was my mentor, had retired and was no longer actively involved in the firm. If Lloyd had still been there and Lloyd had still been actively engaged in the firm, I would never have left. Uh, he was he was like a father to me. And my, my my dad is still alive. Um, Lloyd actually no longer is, uh, but but he was as close to a second father as I could have. And I never would have left the firm if he was still there. So that was that was the first thing. The second thing was uh, Montgomery had basically made it impossible for us to stay. And the third thing was I implicitly trusted the four guys that I was leaving with. Yeah, I, I, I have to ask, um, did, well, obviously, you know, Montgomery pushing you out. It was it was it seems like it, at the end of the day, it was was it a business decision that, that this. Yeah. Plain and simple, it, he, yeah. he did not want to do court defense work anymore, and he wanted to make sure that he got rid of the last vestiges of that from his firm. And so we he actually, I will say. Uh, he was extremely nice when we told him that we were leaving. He was very helpful. Uh, he wished us good luck. We are the only group that ever left his firm that he ever gave a party for. Um, so he sent us off on a good note. And, and I think it was because he was happy that we were taking that business and leaving, that he, that he wasn't going to have to fire us or he wasn't going to have to force us out, that we had done it for him. So I think he was he was happy that that had happened. Um, you know, he he just did not want, despite the fact that it was very lucrative work, he just didn't want to do it anymore. And he didn't want his firm to do it anymore. And so he made it easy for us to say, we've got to go. Well, I'm happy to hear that he did leave it on good terms. Uh, you know, but once again, still just an amazing story. Uh, honestly, I really love that. Um, it's inspiring to me because, you know, at, at certain points in everyone's life, you know, you, you got to sit down and think about, you know, what's going on and what am I doing? And and sometimes you got to make that risk and, 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 you know, take the leap of faith. And, and you know, sometimes it works out. Sometimes it does like it did for you. 
uh, but you know, just doing it and 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 undertaking that challenge, it's always a wonderful thing to do. You know, it 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 makes you a better person. Clearly, you know, it 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 has helped you throughout your career, and I hope to have a, a similar experience in my life. Um, but moving on from from that sort of switching gears here uh you 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 made a book uh it was a, the first biography ever on Alton B Parker the 1902 democratic candidate is is that right was he uh, in 1904 he was oh, 1904 okay I missed it by two years. president uh, and yes uh there there had never been a a, a full blown uh biography written about him so can can Give us a little anecdote about about Alton B. Parker. Why you decided to write about him, and and why you even decided to write a book? Uh, okay, so the the decision to write about him was pretty easy for me. I read a book probably thirty years ago called "They Also Ran," written by a guy by the name of Irving Stone. And "They Also Ran" tells the story of every major party candidate for president who had run and not gotten elected. And so there's basically a mini bio of, of all of the men who had run uh, and had not been elected, going, going back to you know uh, George Washington's time, uh, up to the, the 60s. The book came out in the 60s. And there, there was a seven or eight page biography of Alton Parker, because um, he ran and obviously didn't win. And in the, the first paragraph of his uh, little bio, Stone wrote uh, something along these lines. Of all the men who also ran, Alton Parker is the only one who has never had a biography written about him. And I read that and I thought, well, that's just not right. right? <laughs> Why is he the only guy that's never had a biography written about him? Parker was a lawyer and a judge. Uh, he was actually the chief judge of the New York Court of Appeals, which is New York's highest court. And at the time that he was the chief judge, the New York Court of Appeals was the second most important court in the United States, just behind the U.S. Supreme Court. And so I was interested in him for that reason, right, because he was a lawyer like me. He was a judge. Uh, he he was, a, in my mind, a fascinating character. And so I just thought that's not right. It's not right that somebody hasn't written a biography about him. And I, I said to myself, so you know what? I'm going to change that. Uh, I'm going to start collecting stuff. And when I retire and I have time on my hands, I'm going to sit down. And I'm going to write his bio. And so that's what I did for 30 years. I collected stuff. I collected source material. And I um, never, I'll 100% honest with you, Nate, never thought that I would actually write it. Uh, it, it it did give me something to tell people because people would say to me, well, you're awfully young to be retired. What are you going to do with your time? And I would always say, oh, I'm going to write this biography of Alton Parker. And I never really thought that I would do it. And I sat down in April of 2022. And I did not stop typing until uh, shortly after Thanksgiving that year. And, and I was, I think the Friday after Thanksgiving, I had a first draft done mm -hmm. and my wife uh, was nice enough, kind enough to serve as my agent. And she <laughs> uh, found a publisher, uh, the State University of New York Press, 
said that they were very interested. They sent me a contract. And so I got it in final book form and uh, it was uh, published in December. Well, that's awesome. I, always, I I think you're the first person on the podcast to have a book published. I hope no one else did and I just missed it. But um, that's awesome. I love to always hear that because, you know, it's, I don't think I, I don't know if I'd ever write a book. I might just be like you. Well, I'll t- tell everyone that I'm writing a book and then end up not doing it. Um, I'm not doing <laughs> But I'm happy to hear that uh, that SUNY uh, gave you the contract. That's me, SUNY Albany. Uh, the, yeah. the headquarters are right down the road from me. So I'm happy they did that. Um, I knew they were going to do it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but you said you're coming out with the second book. Can you give us a little sneak? I don't know if you can or not. Can you give us a little sneak peek of the second book? I, I can. So it's called, uh, tentatively titled, uh, The Democrats in Turmoil. Uh, the... Um, The Democrats uh, at the turn of the century, so basically the late 1800s, early 1900s, had a very, very, very difficult time deciding on who their nominee was going to be. And they went into their conventions and they wound up opening all kinds of wounds that wouldn't heal. And as a result, the Democrats, with the exception of, of 1912 and 1916, the Democrats were unable to get anybody elected president. And, and my, my premise is it's because of the, the issues that arose during their conventions that split the party. That's what prevented them from being able to elect uh, a candidate. And in fact, in 1912, 1912 was a very acrimonious uh, convention for the Democrats. Uh, the only reason that Woodrow Wilson won in 1912 is because Teddy Roosevelt bolted the Republican Party and split the Republicans in two. Almost all historians agree if he had not done that, if either Roosevelt was the nominee or Taft was the nominee, Wilson would not have won. And uh, he he barely won re-election in 1916. Um, now, there wasn't, there wasn't a tumultuous convention that year because Wilson was a sitting president and he was he was nominated on the first ballot, but the Democrats were still having issues. And so again, um, he only he only got reelected because Charles Evans Hughes, who was the Republican nominee in 1916, uh, made a political error in not uh, meeting with um, the governor of California. That cost him California, cost him the election. So uh, the premise of the book is these um, these knockdown drag out fights that the democrats had uh, in 1896 1904 1912 1920 and 1924 is what led to their inability to to get someone elected to the white house well i'm certainly interested in that i i, I love my history i'm i'm a i wouldn't say i'm a history buff because i'm only 20 years old and you know i've i've read like 25 books uh and I oh yeah i got time i i know i do um, but I have to ask, what does acrimonious mean? I got to add something to my dictionary here. Uh, it means um, uh, they're fighting. Uh, they're they're um, bitterly opposed. Um, they're not uh, they're not in harmony. It's uh, acrimonious is is uh, the the very uh, it's an antonym for harmony. Mm. So they were they were bitter bitter fights. Acrimonious means that there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of venom, a lot of uh, hard feelings. 
Uh, and and that really they could not come together to 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 work to get someone elected. And it really uh, it was a big because here here's the thing, Nate. Um, during that time frame, right from 1896 all the way up to 1932, which is with the exception of those two elections, 1912 and 1916, during that whole time frame, the Republicans were elected to the presidency. But on the state and local level, the Democrats were doing exceptionally well. They simply could not figure out how to work together to get somebody elected president. And so uh, the this second book kind of grew out of the first one because I spend time in the biography of Walton Parker talking about the 1904 convention and talking about how the Democrats um, were really splintered going into that convention. And that although Parker got the nomination on the first ballot, the party was so fractured, they would not come together and support him. And so um, he, it was a, it was a, even though he got, a, he got the nomination rather quickly, it, the, they had bitter fights over the platform. Uh, there were bitter fights leading up to his nomination and they just refused uh, more than half of the party refused to support him in the general election. So he had no chance, even if he wasn't running against Teddy Roosevelt right? Arguably one of the most popular people to ever sit in the, in the presidential chair. Even if he wasn't running against Roosevelt, he still would not have won because of all of the, the bitterness that came out of that convention. And then you saw it again uh, in 1912. It took dozens of ballots for Wilson to, to finally win the nomination. And he only won, not because the Democrats came together behind him, but because the Republicans split themselves in half. And then in 1920 and 1924, they had such, such bitter disputes that they could not support the ultimate nominee. Yeah, that that's interesting. I mean, I, I, I love me some bull moose too. And, uh, you know, I, I'm 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 surprised to hear that. Would you say like one of the most popular in history? Because I don't, I've never really looked into him that much. I just know he got shot in the chest that one time, and and his glass, his oh, yeah. glasses thing stopped him. He kept going. Roosevelt. He was. He was. Um, I mean, pick your pick pick a pick pick your you know biggest uh, celebrity today. That's that's what Roosevelt was. I mean, he was he was. Uh, he, he was undoubtedly the most well-known person in the country. And there was a, you know, he, he became president when William McKinley was assassinated in 1901. So there was a great deal of sympathy for him that, that basically, you know, held over to 1904. He was a very progressive president. He passed a lot of uh, very progressive uh, measures through Congress, which uh, got the, the common man to support him. And he was larger than life. I mean, he was he was uh, at the time and remains one of the most popular presidents we've ever had. And most historians would say one of the best. So I have to ask on the topic of books, um, I'm, a, I'm a little bit of a reader myself. Um, I read a lot of philosophy books, though. Uh, and I, I always like I've, I've only read one biography, Benjamin Franklin, which I recommend to everyone. Um, it's his autobiography is unbelievable. That guy was amazing. Oh, 
really, really someone I really do look up to. Um, what what are some books throughout your life that helped you, irregardless of if they have to do with the law or not? Or maybe some of your favorites. Okay. Probably my favorite book of all time is The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexander Dumas. Now, if you get, don't get the abridged version. Get the get the get the actual the one that that Dumas wrote. Uh, now, I'm going to warn you, it's over a thousand pages long, but it is, and to me. Not only is it a is it a fantastic story, but it it there's a lot of lessons in there about life, and a lot of of lessons about thinking carefully about what you do, and how what you do can affect not only yourself but affect others, and so I recommend that book to everybody. The um, I tell you another another book that I'm a big fan of, uh, and recommend to folks is um, how to make friends and influence people. So it's a it's a great gr there you go. I got it right uh, here. It's it's a it's another it's a very 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 good book. Um, I I am um, I I like I like. I'm a big biography reader, mm. uh, so I like to read biographies. And, and my favorite biography, hands down, other than Alton B. Parker, the man who challenged Roosevelt. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite biography is a uh, biography of Thomas Jefferson. Mm. And it's, it's called Thomas Jefferson, A Life. It was authored by Willard Stern Randall. It is probably the best biography I've ever read. And it's so it's so good, Nate, that when I read it, I I had a I had an, an almost physical desire to meet Thomas Jefferson. I mean, I, I almost like I a, a a visceral reaction that I, I wanted to, I, I I just really, really wish that I could meet him. Because you think Ben Franklin is is fascinating, Thomas Jefferson runs circles around Franklin. I mean, he was he was uh, you know a a, a patriot, uh, you know a founding father, founded the University of Virginia. He was a uh, uh, an inventor, a planter, a writer, uh, I mean, a philosopher. He he's he was he was a Renaissance man in every sense of the word. And when you read that biography, you're just like, wow. Wow. The creator uh, of the swivel chair. Yeah, right? Exactly. He <laughs> he created all kinds of things. The dumb waiter. Uh, uh I mean, just all kinds of stuff. Um and here's here's another one. Uh, and you you may you may laugh at this. But this is a book that I have actually read. I believe I've read it five times, <laughs> may, maybe more. You ready? Absolutely. The Swiss Family Robinson. Mm -hmm. Never heard of it. It is. It is. Uh, so it was made into a movie by Disney. I think in the either late sixties or early seventies. I would recommend skipping the movie. 
uh, read the book. It's about a, a, a Swiss family, hence Swiss Family Robinson, uh, by the name of Robinson, <laughs> who are uh, marooned on a deserted island. And the book is about all of the things that they do in order to survive on this, on this deserted island. And it is just a fascinating description of how they took what was there and were able to, uh, to make shelter, uh, to be able to feed themselves, to be able to clothe themselves. It's, it's a highly entertaining read and literally a book that I read uh, probably every, oh, maybe six, seven years. I just pull it off the shelf and I read it again. It's just that entertaining. It sounds like the 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 anti Lord of the Flies. Call, call, call. Uh, that's exactly right. That is exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. No, that's that that was that was a we had I had to read that in high school so I know I know a lot of people out there know know the Lord of the Flies especially if you know you live in New York it's in the curriculum trust me Every oh, <laughs> I, I know that this is the exact opposite you're exactly right so so we're getting down uh to, I got some fine final three questions here my my first okay. one is is an in, it's an interesting question um I keep saying it's a little weird but you know follow along um so what i have to ask is you know on, on a daily basis what are the kinds of things that are uh, you are consuming not food um in terms of you know what what are you reading every day maybe on social media maybe just you know the types of just just anything that the things that cross the transom of your mind you know what, what are you doing every day so I uh, always review, um, I have a subscription to the New York Times. Mm -hmm. So I read that. Uh, I have um, a, I, I follow, uh, I'm on Twitter uh, and, and Instagram and Facebook. Uh, so I, I review those every day. Uh, I spend, um, I, I right now, because I told you I'm in the middle of, of writing this second book. So I spend a lot of time reading other books. Right? So, to, you know, to, to, to find information for, for, for what I'm writing. Um, I, and I'll, 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 I'll be honest with you, Nate, I'm, my wife and I are kind of polar opposites in this regard. My wife loves to watch the news. I don't. I don't like to watch the news because I find the news depressing. Uh, it's just, you know, stories of people getting shot, people, you know, dying in car accidents, uh, you know, uh, another school shooting, uh, you know, horrible things, uh, you know, going on uh, overseas. That just depresses me. I, I don't, I mean, I, I pay attention. Um, you know, obviously I get information from the Times, uh, from the other, you know, the social media that I look at, but I, I just cannot bring myself to watch the news. She, she puts it on every night and I'm like, would you turn that off? I don't want to be depressed. So I stop, stop, stop watching the news. She's like, well, I like to know what's going on. I'm like, you know, I'll tell you what's going on. Someone else died. Someone else got shot. Someone else involved in car accident. There you go. Now you can turn the news off. Uh, so I mean, it, it, it's, it's true. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I consider myself an informed person. Uh, I know what's going on. I just don't need the nitty gritty details mm -hmm. of all of the nasty things that are happening. Yeah, just only only the broad strokes, please. No, don't don't exactly. don't get exactly. too specific. 
Um, I don't want but... to be <laughs> exactly. Don't don't ruin the beautiful Phoenix night, please. <laughs> Just for one day. <laughs> um, but my second to last question here. Um, you know, you're writing your books. Previously, you, you know, you're working in the law. What does an ideal Sunday morning or Friday night look for Brad? Wow. Uh, an ideal um, Sunday morning. Well, <laughs> ideally, my wife would let me sleep in, which she recommends <laughs> me. Uh, that would be that. I keep telling her so today she set the alarm for 645. I'm like, we're retired. Why are you setting the alarm for 645? Stop it. This is not right. You should not be doing that to me. Uh, so ideally, I would sleep in uh, a little bit. Then I would get up and I take my I have two English bulldogs. I take my bulldogs out uh, and I get them some breakfast. Then I'd have some breakfast. And uh, then I would like probably if I'm if I'm uh, really having a great day, I'd go play some pickleball, oh, uh, which yeah. you can do with a great deal of frequency out here in Arizona. Uh, so I would go do that. And then uh, I would probably come back. And uh, if it's a if it's a Sunday during the fall, uh, I would wa definitely watch some football. Mm -hmm. um, so I would uh, probably watch a game or two. And uh, that would probably take me into the early evening. They'd probably take me to around dinner time. I have some dinner and then, uh, you know, I'd probably work on the book for a little bit and then uh, go to bed. That'd be my, that'd be my day. What's uh? you got a favorite team? Uh, so <laughs> I do. I, it's not a the team in good anymore. No. I, I am a, I am a big new England Patriots fan. Oh, uh, wow. I was, but, but I can say, uh, I was a New England Patriots fan uh, again back when they were very bad. Yeah, uh, I, I was a Patriots fan in the eighties, uh, so <laughs> I've been a Patriots fan for a long, long time. People say, "Oh, Patriots, Brady and Belichick, you know, you're just bandwagon." No, no, no. I've been I have been a Patriots fan when they were very bad. I've been a fan when they were very good, and now I'm a Patriots fan still when they're very bad. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm sorry to inform you, I am a Giants fan myself. Um, but but well, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, my I, my dad has the shirt that says, uh, uh, what is it? 17 and one giant loss. Uh, so, uh -huh. you know, it's, those are, listen, those are two, both those nights, one of my favorite nights ever. Um, especially the second one, because afterwards, me and my family went to Dick's uh, to get, we got like the Super Bowl t-shirts and everyone from town was there and, you know, people were honking in the parking lot going crazy. It was a crazy time. Um but but my dad always says that too. Um, talking about the Giants because I they were terrible in the seventies, um, and you know he he had to suffer through that, uh, and and so it's very understandable um, co coming from you that you're definitely not the bandwagon. You you've stuck around no, for a long no. time. I've been there. I've been there for the long haul. I'm still there. <laughs> we'll yes. see what happens next year. Especially, especially even this uh, this past weekend, even the the Lions winning the first playoff win right? in thirty two years. Oh, that! Talking talk about the long waiting for the long haul. Uh, you know, after the game, you could see that the tears coming out in a lot of the fans, uh, you know, eyes, and you know that's always a nice thing. I, I like seeing those things. But final question, Brad. Um, at the end of every episode, I always have the words of wisdom. What are your words of wisdom for the aspiring law students, the current law students, and the legal professionals out there in the world? 
So I'll go back to what I said before, because uh, I think this applies to law students, uh, aspiring law students, and certainly people who are in the legal profession. You have to figure out what it is you want to do, what makes you happy. And that's what you need to do. You need to figure out what, what area of the law excites you and where you can see yourself spending a career. And that's what you need to, what you need to strive for. The other thing I would say, and I think this is very uh, important words of advice that I give to anybody who is in law school, anybody who is uh, starting um, their career, and that is live below your means. Uh, too many times I see young lawyers who get out of law school, they get hired by a firm, they uh, are making a, a lot of money and they are spending a lot of money, right? They're, they want to go on the really fancy vacations and they want to buy, you know, the brand new Lexus and they want to get, you know, a huge house. And, and I, the one thing that my wife and I were always very good about was we always lived below our means. We, we had a nice house, but we didn't have an exorbitant house. Uh, we drove nice cars, but we didn't drive expensive, fancy, flashy cars. Uh, we would take vacations, but we, you know, we didn't take vacations, you know, three week uh, trip around, you know, Europe and things like that. Uh, and as a result, uh, we were able to retire when we were 55. And so uh, that's because we made sure that we uh, lived below our means. Uh, we didn't, uh, what I say is we made sure that we never got the golden handcuffs. Because that's what happens. That because once you start down that road, then you just have to keep going, and and then you might wind up having to take a job that you don't like doing because it's paying you a lot of money, and you're not going to be happy because you are doing something you don't want to do for the wrong reasons. So I always tell people uh, you need to make sure that uh, you uh, live below your means. Uh, so that you you know can make sure that you can retire uh, early if you want to. Uh, you you have the opportunity, the luxury to do what you want. Uh, and the 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 last thing I would say, Nate, the other advice that I give to people who are interested in going to law school and people who are in law school, I always ask them this question: uh, Do you want to be in sales? And a lot of times I get people who say, no, I don't want to be in sales. Well, why in the world would you ask me that? And I tell them, because if you are going to be a lawyer and you are going to work for some someone other than the government or a corporation, you are going to have to sell. You're going to have to sell yourself. You're going to have to sell your firm. You're going to have to sell your services. And if you are not comfortable selling, then go do something else. Because the only way that you're ever going to be able to get your own clients to be able to, to do what you want to do is to be able to go out and sell, to sell yourself, to sell your firm, to sell your services. And if you can't get your mind around being able to do that, then you should go do something else. Because I don't care where you go, I don't care what you do, I don't care what area of the law you're in, you are going to have to sell. And, and it, that takes people by surprise. They're like, well, I, 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 never, I never thought about that. I said, nobody ever thinks about that. Nobody ever talks about that. I said, that's why I always tell people who are interested in going to law school, you need to think about, are you interested in selling? Because you're going to have to sell. Well, 
Brad, that might have potentially been the best words of wisdom we have had on the podcast so far. But that's the pod. Brad, thank you so much for coming on. And for the people out there listening, thank you for tuning in. And I will see you in the next one.